Welcome back to Project Dot Ocean, a story told in parts. I am your narrator, your voice of reason, and now your own neurologist, Joey Ammons. What's an own neurologist, you ask? Keep listening to find out. I've received my fifth black envelope in the mail. Reading an anonymous story from an anonymous person in the mail hasn't changed much in the age of coronavirus. All except for that I'm shuttered in my apartment like a doomsday prepper, only leave once a week for food and water wearing a hazmat suit, and drench everything I have to make contact with in isopropyl alcohol. So you'll excuse me if this chapter smells a little bit like it's been disinfected for surgery. Seriously though, I need this. These phantom symptoms are getting bad. I can't tell if my throat actually hurts, or if I just think my throat hurts, which makes my throat hurt because I'm swallowing to test it. And did my lungs always feel so weird like this? It's all a bit much. Well, it's recap time. This is a serial podcast. If you're a new listener, I won't shoo you off. But I would tell you to strongly reconsider stopping here and starting with episode one. On the last episode, Charlotte, in an attempt to recover lost memories of the elusive Aleph, enters Loki State to visit the manor. After we get a rather uncomfortable glimpse at Charlotte's key to her academic prowess, we turn a corner to discover a memory bank of sorts. Is that memory or nemory? What's the difference? Can you even hear a difference? Charlotte is able to re-experience these memories using a device called a stereoscope. Remember those? At random, she engages a distressing memory involving her mother having some sort of psychotic episode. Jesus, Charlotte, I'm sorry. Then Charlotte finds the memory disc that coincides with the mysterious Halloween photograph. The memory seems to be a fiction because within it, she never encounters Aleph. He and his family seem to have been omitted entirely. Dun, dun, dun. Disclaimer. I am a cis, straight, white male, as far as I can tell. But as someone who strives to be woke AF... I want it to be clear that this story contains a broad array of ethnically, sexually ambiguous, and possibly gender-ambiguous characters, and it is my intention to portray these characters in their most honest light, and without stereotype. Trigger warning. I should also warn listeners that while I don't rate this explicit, this story contains some adult themes, people who struggle with mental illness, and for the first time now, one solitary but well-placed F-bomb. My wid. I've decided to make an adjustment. Instead of promoting the use of alcohol like a frat boy celebrating his 21st birthday on spring break, which have henceforth been cancelled due to coronavirus, I am changing this portion of the podcast to what I'm dreaming. As I stated at the top of the show, I am now your favorite and only onerologist. An onerologist is someone who studies dreams. To what end, I don't know, but well, let's just dive in. Starting with my own this week. A few nights ago, I woke in an elaborate, cozy, standalone two-bedroom home next to my partner. There were bay windows, a small but decent kitchen. We lived there, of course, there in the financial district of New York City. My partner had inherited the home from her real father, now deceased, but had been the great Carl Sagan. As you can imagine, waking up in Queens and sharing walls with loud people was a disappointment. I told my partner, and she said, Wow, it's like the opposite of Luke. What? I said. Luke Skywalker had to find out his dad was Darth Vader, but Carl Sagan was like the best guy ever. True. And more importantly, Luke didn't get a house. Just some lousy blue milk and a droid with a bad motivator. Oh, and a lightsaber. Okay, now this is starting to sound like a decent trade-off, actually. 
Now, I don't want this podcast to be all about me, so this is a call to you, dear listeners. Please send me your dreams and I will interpret them. You can email me at projectoddocean at gmail.com, just like it's spelled, P-R-O-J-E-C-T-O-D-O-C-E-A-N at gmail.com. I've spoken enough. Now on with the show, I give you Chapter 5 of Odd Ocean. Charlotte was seated on a bench not far from the gnarled roots of the tree that so well formed a resemblance to 26th President Theodore Roosevelt. This was Charlotte's third visit to the park, where she first discovered the photograph. She had accumulated a hefty cab bill this week and knew she could not afford to continue these visits, but she had exhausted all other avenues. Charlotte had made several attempts earlier in the week to visit what she now called the Nemery Catalog, Specifically cited by Quintilian was an emphasis on the N in Nemery, referring specifically to the encoded loci variant rather than its casual, less colorful counterpart. Re-experiencing memories was not far removed from reading a journal, Charlotte mused. She had suspected nothing within those Nemeries connected to nor contained Aleph. She could not even find conversations or events that her father alluded to regarding her supposed obsession upon his vanishing. Further evidence that both her memories and memories alike were untrustworthy and somehow altered. Charlotte continued to pursue Gordick's puzzles under the standard practice. She had hoped to uncover other Sarandite passages and maybe glimpse the cat gremlin creature again, but nothing of that sort happened. Gordick's puzzles presented themselves. She continued to find solutions, distracted though she was, and she continued with her work. Against her better judgment, she had shared the articles regarding Aleph with Zoe who not only confirmed their authenticity, but also took it upon himself to do further research of his own. He turned up little. He had become entirely too invested in the mystery himself, but Charlotte, now reporting directly to him, did not want to involve him any further, especially because of the psychiatric implications. Businesses and society alike were not known for being supportive of mental illness. Mental illness, she thought. A familiar sinking feeling that roiled up from within her bowels, bowels like a twisted knot of snakes writhing and struggling against one another, agitated and confused, and then the inevitable swallowing void of nothingness, that doomy feeling. She braced for the inescapable panic that followed and reached for the mirror ball pendant. The charm served its purpose. She felt her body still, a tingling warm sensation washing away the distress, and she set her mind to the task at hand. Charlotte was holding the photograph. It was not entirely clear what her bit of handwriting was asking her to do. Return here in loci could mean dozens of things. Why could she not at least have added another line of instruction? At this point in time, she really only had about 20 minutes to ponder the note before she had to head back to the office. She had to try something different this time. Charlotte, examining the face, concluded that the tangle of roots did look face-like. But the more she stared at it, the less like Theodore Roosevelt it seemed. In fact, it could have been any other old, bespeckled man with facial hair. The contorted root that formed the mustache looked more slug-like than a mustache. Pareidolia, Charlotte thought. An optical illusion, or more precisely, the proclivity to assign agency to inanimate objects. Rabbits in clouds, faces on Mars, presidents in tree knots. Our human brains have a strong bias for interpreting patterns in nature, faces especially. 
in an effort to suss out threats before they are, well, threatening, she considered. A striped cheetah among Sahara grasses may elude the average gazelle, but the human mind will see a complicated pattern shift, find the outlier, the slit pupil of its eye, combine it with the barely audible cracking of dry grass under its paws, and within a flash the human mind constructs a narrative out of a seemingly disparate collection of stimuli. The human suspicions are alerted. Danger! They see the cheetah crouching low in the grasses ready to pounce. Fight or flight. The human reacts just quickly enough to raise a spear of defense or preempt an ambush altogether. Thus, humans evolve to oversolve for this, because in nature, better safe than sorry also applies. Especially so. Loki was like that, wasn't it? Charlotte pondered. Imposing order on disorder. Assuming patterns in nature. Understanding the logic and math behind the thin veil of reality. But threats in the modern world were usually a bit more nuanced. Sometimes threats were existential. The more complicated the world becomes, the more true this also becomes. The next thought that occurred to Charlotte was novel to her, at least as far as she could recall. Seeing a face in the tree knots made her wonder if it were possible to project loci environments based on real places. As it happened, Charlotte was accustomed to arriving within loci's as they had already been conceived of, well within the bowels of her subconscious mind. Like the manor, or any of the vistas she encountered containing Gordix puzzles. What if it were possible to marry the two somehow? To freely traverse an emery, applying loci-based principles to it. With little time to spare, Charlotte placed an oversized pair of sound-reducing headphones over her head, encapsulating her ears. Then, with its thick spiral cord in hand, plugged directly into her phone handset. On a hunch, she had also planned to try something new this time. Instead of riding the waves of white noise to engage the loci state, she was also going to play two separate wavelengths in either ear. They created what was known as a binaural beat. The beats themselves were, in some sense, like the presidential tree knot. They were an illusion caused by the interpretation of overlapping wavelengths. Early studies showed a relationship with affected brain state wavelengths and binaural beats. There must have been some accuracy to those studies because as the two frequencies melded together and the beat formed, Charlotte could feel herself cresting the beginning stages of loci state in a matter of seconds. She took to the binaural beats naturally, not having to undergo the exhausting ritual of counting static artifacts. It was like discovering a motorboat on an ocean she had only ever rowed in a paddleboat. But she needed something more than just effective loci state engagement. She needed to return to this spot somehow in loci. The solution came to her as soon as she considered it. She simply had to access the memory from earlier in the week when she and Zoe first excavated the mysterious Halloween photograph. When she opened her eyes, she was there in the manor at the memory catalog, the correct day's disc already in hand. She placed it into the stereoscope. Charlotte was then in the park with Zoe reliving the memory, but perhaps moved by the stunning revelation of discovering the Halloween photograph, Charlotte found herself caught up in the current of the Nemery. Who would put this here? Nemery Zoe asked. That's all you saw down there? Nemery Charlotte asked with a spade in hand. Nemery Zoe nodded. Yep. Nemery Charlotte flipped the photograph over and read the two pieces of handwriting. Sir Aleph, written in someone else's handwriting. With photograph in hand, Nemery Charlotte felt a tug in her mind. A voice then coming from another part of herself. The tug was a loose strand asking to be pulled and reeled until that voice, Loki Charlotte, found her way through to break the trance of the memory. 
Charlotte, now, with reconsolidated awareness, found herself locked within the physical form of Nemory Charlotte. She tried to break her gaze away from the Nemory, but it was all she could do to freeze the state of the Nemory itself. The Nemory took on a sort of cooler hue upon its freezing. This is a start, Charlotte thought. Then she tried to remember those early steps on how to impose willful consciousness in REM cycle when she first practiced lucid dreaming. Early ritualistic eye movements. Left, right, up, down, around, and then again. Finally, she found herself tearing away from the frozen Nemory self, floating above the Nemory like some sort of disembodied phantom. She looked back at Nemory Charlotte, frozen in time, holding the unearthed photograph. Return here in loci, her handwriting said. She tried to take the photograph from frozen Nemory Charlotte, but then realized she had no hands with which to grab it. She looked down for her feet. She was not standing there in the Nemory, so she had no feet either. She was an incorporeal lens, observing, but incapable of interacting with or affecting anything. Return here in loci, she read. Well, I'm I'm fucking fucking here, here, she yelled out into the cryogenic park, her echo cascading throughout the memory space. She pondered briefly at the permanence of a memory. This was, of course, the purpose. To understand how her memories, specifically any of those that contained Aleph, could be edited in the first place. She admitted to herself that the most likely possibility was that she was the person who removed him from her memories. Whether it was purely her intention, or something else that made her do it remained to be seen. Ultimately, the engram intentionally brought her here. Something of her past self wanted her here, in this moment, and it had something to do with understanding the origin of this photograph. Her past self must have known it was possible. Charlotte thought back to the origin of Loki's state. She had worked very hard then at training her mind to hold on to something, like a thought, as a concrete object, to give it substance and assign physical attributes to it. She had taken the difficulty of those simple steps for granted. She had to reteach herself these steps again. She first tried to visualize her hands, but no avail. Then she wondered what it was that allowed her at all to see her surroundings. In the very least, she must have had eyes. Was there a smell to the world? Yes. She could hold the scent of the park in her mind. She must then have at least a head. How then was she traveling? On feet? She had to have been walking. She shot her hand up to the mirror ball pendant as if to feel it with the hand that she must have had. She could feel it starkly between forefinger and thumb. An anchoring tactility so routine that she could then easily build the rest of her body around it. She then looked at her familiar hands, along with her cherished deep sapphire coat and the bottomless satchel inventory, and she knew Loki's state had been successfully superimposed over the memory. Charlotte focused again at the ground where the photograph had been unearthed. She placed her hands there and tried to lift a chunk of solid sod from the memory. It would not budge. Another chunk then, but again it was frozen into place like ice. She reached into her satchel and retrieved a small metallic object about the size and shape of a hockey puck with a seam around its curved surface. She called it a puck mine. She turned the top half of the device several notches and pressed the top red button before taking cover behind a nearby boulder and plugged her ears. After the device detonated, she went and checked the result. The stone-like pieces of sod were still intact, but now had blackened and were exposed. Their worldly veneer blasted away as if it had been treated with the world's strongest paint stripper. While the blasted objects maintained their original shape, they were now made up of curious material. 
iridescent obsidian interlaced with petrol pearlescence, and bands of a blackness so dark they appeared bottomless voids. Charlotte immediately observed a kind of kinship to the white sarandite, and deemed this material to be some sort of cousin, so she called it black sarandite. Then on a whim she wove the chain of the mirror pendant between her fingers so that the pendant was nestled in the heart of her palm, and held it up to the black material. But instead of deteriorating or melting away like typical white sarandite, the black sarandite morphed around it and reconstituted wherever the pendant was not. This effort came with a strong, jarring, repellent force, not unlike the resistance met at trying to mate two like poles of a magnet. There was something organic and rebellious about the black sarandite that its white counterpart seemed to lack. It had an agency to it, which she found queer and disquieting. Charlotte produced another puck mine from her satchel, turned the dial in the opposite direction, which caused the puck to separate into two halves still connected by wires. She unwound the pendant from her hands and stashed it into the guts of the device before placing the two halves back together. She turned the dial as before to detonate, and then took cover. There was another earth-shaking boom. When she turned around to examine the result, she was rewarded in seeing a sizable crater with agitated chunks of black sarandite vibrating and confused nearby. The blast exposed a glowing light source from underneath the tree knots. With it came a notably unusual metallic flavor to the air. Charlotte removed more of the black sarandite rubble. The material burned in her hands with a kind of radioactive heat, so she clumsily flung the piece away before it could burn her. Then she procured a spade from her satchel. It was identical to the one Zoe found in the Nemery, and she used it to push away the rubble with that instead. As Charlotte made progress, the glow coalesced into a blinding white pool of light. It was so bright that it outshined the daylight in the Nemery. She cautiously reached out with the spade and saw it pass through the pool of light with no resistance at the threshold. She pulled the spade back to examine it and was reassured at finding it unfazed by the light. With a boldness, then, Charlotte thrust her head down into the white pool. What she saw was an inversion of the Nemery. The park literally turned on its head. The gravity within the Nemery told her that she was right side up until she peered through the light pool portal and then it was as though she were looking down from the top of a mirrored variant of the Nemery. Charlotte was worried that if she stepped entirely through, that she would fall endlessly down, or rather up, through naked gray sky. With the spade still in hand, she tossed it into the open air on the other side. Gripped by the gravity of the inverted world, the spade fell back to the ground. Reassured by this, Charlotte crawled entirely through the portal, and was nauseous for a brief second as gravity shifted. Still on hands and knees, she felt the normalcy of her senses return to her, and she looked around. There were large, organic, twisting columns of black sarandite pushing up from the ground nearby. These tortured structures appeared to be born out of some immense cataclysmic violence, perhaps from her early detonation on the other side. But now they stood in silence. The black sarandite, already somewhat unsettling on its own, maintained a sort of metallic, tarnished corruption throughout. The rest of the terrain was both eerily familiar and yet foreign. Trees and paths, buildings in the distance told her she was still in Fort Hamilton Park, but everything was infected with the same metallic tarnish that coated the twisting black sarandite structures. Charlotte examined a leaf. It was not the dewy verdant green of a living plant, but instead a lifeless metallic graphite. The sky was an achromatic gray and unsettlingly still. The environment as a whole lacked wind or noise. Everything was fixed in a sort of unnatural, colorless stasis. 
this metallic variant of Fort Hamilton Park, as well as its picture-perfect memory counterpart, were enantiomorphs of each other, Charlotte knew. In mathematics, that meant they had a kind of chiral or mirror symmetry. That is all except for their striking difference in disposition and atmosphere, she thought. Strangely, the haze disruption associated with memory experiences was absent altogether. Was this a sort of loci-nemory crossbreed, she wondered? Was her imagination filling in areas that would have otherwise been absent? Another oddity, perhaps the most ominous of all, were the statuesque depictions of herself, Zoe, and other people. She had, at first, missed both mistaking them to be additional damaged black cerandite structures near the hockey mine blast site. An alarming sharp shard of her own face laid among the rubble. She kneeled over and examined it without touching. The blackness of the cerandite drank up most of the light, but she could make out her expression, same as in the memory. Through its uncanniness, a sort of unease in the expression ate at her. Perhaps it was the lack of pupils, a piercing accusatory glint to the eyes, or just that anguished essence of the black cerandite itself. The shard of her face began to vibrate, and then undulated gelatinously in a unison with all the other pieces of black cerandite nearby. The movement was increasing at an alarming rate. Charlotte backed away quickly, putting some distance between herself and the volatile bits of black cerandite. Refusing to take her eyes off the material, Charlotte watched a sinuous graphite arm vigorously pushing itself out through the vibrating black shard of her face. There was an erratic sort of desperation to its movements that Charlotte found distressing. Charlotte continued to flee, her pace quickening to an outright run. After a couple dozen yards, she shot another glance back over her shoulder to have her fears confirmed. A throng of achromatic metallic humanoids birthing themselves out forth from the other vibrating shards. She quickly determined that they were clones of herself, pupilous and malformed doppelgangers clothed in tarnished, torn variants of her workwear, and they meant her ill. The first one freed itself completely from the shard, targeted Charlotte, and broke into a desperate sprint towards her position. She reached up for her mirror pendant, which had within it a built-in transport behavior, but she had forgotten that she used it earlier in the puck mine. Without it, she was not even certain she could break free of the loci state. Fling away desperately, Charlotte quickly reached into her satchel and procured another puck mine, armed it, and sent it flying behind her at the pursuing mob. A second later, the device detonated and she caught a glimpse of several disparate achromatic limbs flying. One landed ahead of her and shattered into a thousand pieces as it made contact with the ground. This did not discourage their fellows, which continued their pursuit of Charlotte and had closed in within a matter of yards. A grasping hand shot out to grab her. Charlotte scrambled in her satchel for something else. She pulled from her satchel a long metal baton charged with a luminescent energy down its shaft and swatted at the offending hand. A glancing blow to the arm struck true and it fractured cleanly at the strike point before it could make contact. Like a shattered piece of crystalline glass, it fell away, trailing glittering dust particles. Just as Charlotte was scrambling back, another grasping hand from a second doppelganger had already shot out and captured her ankle, sending her reeling to the ground. Upon its touch, Charlotte immediately felt a nauseating wave of disturbance. Not only because its touch was lifelessly cold, but because it came with a sharp feeling tinged with something vacuous, huge, and inevitable. It was the doomy feeling her real-world counterpart had become so familiar with. She struck down again with the baton, swatting away the hand and reducing it to dust. But Charlotte was cornered now with her aggressors, surrounding her from all angles. She brandished the energy baton and prepared to put up a fight before being taken down, a sinking suspicion in her asked what would happen if these creatures were allowed to tear her apart. 
Was there a possibility that she would be permanently locked in within her real-world self? She refused to entertain the thought any further, as the uncertainty was far too grim. With a reawakened sense of urgency, Charlotte chose a path where the doppelgangers were less concentrated and strategically swung the energy baton around, hoping to injure them enough to possibly make an escape. She only managed to scathe a few in the process, leaving them undamaged. They joined with their fellows and pressed in. A dismal hopelessness set in as Charlotte's baton-wielding arm was captured by two separate doppelgangers before she could make another blow. Attempting to transfer the weapon to her offhand proved futile as well, when a third pair of hands grasped that limb and pulled her forcefully to the ground. All seemed lost. Just then, something larger and more imposing came up through the back and barreled through the mob. Its powerful charge launched several flying through the air. The doppelgangers turned then to focus on their new enemy. Still out of view, the creature let out a hellish, booming roar. In her panic, she did not realize what was making the noise until she saw lightning-quick hooves bear down on the doppelganger closest to her. Of course, it was Quinn. Well, get the hell on, he yelled. Charlotte threw herself onto Quinn's back. The mob was already closing in on them again. Quintilian bucked hard, knocking one of the doppelganger's heads clean off, which caused its fellows to shrink away. Then Quintilian, with red coals for eyes, charged again at his fleeing prey. He barreled into a couple, sending them reeling, and trampled another into shimmering black powder. Witnessing him in abject violent rage, combined with his sheer immensity, made Charlotte, for the first time, fear Quintilian. Fortunately, however, she was his loyal friend, and a well-placed bite on the neck of the final doppelganger ended the threat. Quinn whinnied as his nerves tried to calm, his eyes still darting left and right for additional enemies. Charlotte leaned over and cautiously stroked his neck while she caught her own breath. His neck was cool and wet from a sheen of sweat coating it. I couldn't find you. I couldn't sense you, Quintilian huffed. Charlotte could feel his booming heartbeat as she stroked him, encouraged by its strength. Seems like you did when it mattered, Charlotte replied. What the hell is this place? Quintilian asked. A taste of my world, I think, Charlotte said. Quintilian stared off into the distance, and Charlotte knew he was disturbed by the answer, so she continued. Well, it's very different, but the park there is a sort of reflection of where I found the photograph. Quintilian was still silent. He always had a sort of blind spot for anything truly external to loci. Providing with real-world evidence proved to be something of a quandary. Well, it's too gray, he said finally. I agree, she replied. Charlotte took one last glance at the open portal at the base of the tree, and a part of her tugged at her to jump back through, to leave this strange and dangerous chiral dream, and to call Dr. Highwind. But she already knew that path, didn't she? She knew what would happen if she called Dr. Highwind, began taking those blue pills again. There were no answers down that road. And though she had no memory of it, erased, altered, or locked away as they were, she knew she had been here before. She knew she had stood here before and made the decision to turn back to comforting normalcy. She would not this time. She had made up her mind to press on. Finally, some effing action in this story. Look at Charlotte brandishing her energy baton like Batman. Or more like Nightwing, I guess. Looks like we're making some progress. I like that word, chiral. And what was that other one? Enantiomorphs? 
No one ever taught me that in math class. I might have listened more if I thought there was a freaking metal doppelgangers. You know what they remind me of? You ever see that old Superman movie? The one with Gene Hackman, Richard Pryor. And Lex Luthor's assistant gets swallowed up by a supercomputer, and she comes back out a weird metallic robot lady who can shoot lasers from her fingers. Eat your heart out, Henry Cavill. We all know Christopher Reeves is the one true soups. Though, thanks for The Witcher. I was pretty happy with it. I'm on my 24th watch through now, thanks to COVID-19. Oh, and a big shout out to Quintilian. Holy crow, that boy can fight. And just in the nick of time, too. And also, no blue pills for Charlotte. Matrix much? Looks like she's gonna keep moving forward. My wilt. What I'm listening to. Time flies when you're staying at home. Or does it? Today, I'm wrecking Dan Carlin's hardcore history. This is like the longest form podcast ever. Dude will go on for hours about a given subject, and there's a ton of it now. My favorite episode is about the Anabaptists in Munster, the city that had to wall itself off from the rest of Europe. It was crazy, culty city filled with Calvinists. Anyways, check it out. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Project.Ocean. Remember, you can email me at project.ocean at gmail.com. Find me on Insta at powerkid.exe and Twitter at Joey Ammons. See you next time. And remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. And you know, maybe you could use like that, a whole palm full of hand sanitizer instead of just a dime-sized amount. That is if you can get it. And drink lots of fluids. Hold your breath and cover your face if you're walking by a coughing person. And remember the six-foot rule. Charlotte had made several attempts earlier in the 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 contorted route that formed the must uh, find the outlier, the slit pupil of the of the eye, and within a flash, the human mind constructs a narrative out of out of out of out of what? Then within within, it was like discovering a motorboat on the. But she needed something more than just effective lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-lo-l